So our sermon text this afternoon comes from Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. As Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things since my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go, sell what you own, and give the money to the poor, and then you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When he heard this, he was shocked, and he went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were perplexed at these words. But Jesus said to them again, Children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? And it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. They'll be greatly astound then they were greatly astounded and said to one another, Then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, for mortals, it is impossible, but for God, everything is possible. Peter began to say to him, look, we've left everything and followed you. Jesus said, truly I tell you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for my sake and for the sake of the good news who will not receive a hundredfold now in this age, houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, and children and fields with persecutions and the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Thanks be to God. All right. You may notice I'm inappropriately dressed for the season. Noah's mouth is wide open. That's what I was going for. Extreme nervousness from my kids. Um, Mark chapter 10, rich young ruler, right? He had great possessions, and he had done something with his possessions. He had attached himself to his possessions as if it were who he was. It was his identity that he was rich and young and a ruler. So now why am I wearing uh, clothes for that would be more typical of Don in the summer here? <laughs> today. Well, I'm doing this to illustrate something to you to make it more memorable. So here is basically what happens to us born into this world without God. So God created us to be in close loving relationship with him and to find all of our identity in the fact that he made us and he made us to glorify him in all of the uniqueness of our individual person and to fellowship with him. But because we're born in sin far away from God, we go about trying to create our own identity. And um, I brought with me some things here to illustrate that. So Mark 10, 21, we, I'm sorry, Mark 8, 34, two chapters previously, this was about a month ago, we talked about, Jesus said, if anyone will follow me, he must deny himself, Take up his cross and follow me. Now in verse chapter 10, we have a case study, 
if you will, of a counseling session between Jesus and this rich man who came to him. And so something happens in our lives as well, kind of like this rich man, as we grow up and we look for our identity, we're paying attention to what's going on in the world and we want to know what gets respect and how do I make a role for myself in this world and how do I find acceptance and all of these things that are needs and desires that God created us with. And instead of looking to God for them, we look in different ways. So, we're born into this world in a very vulnerable way. We don't understand our identity. So, I feel at this moment, standing in front of you in these shorts and t-shirt and flip-flops, uh, kind of out of place and vulnerable. So, like any kid growing up, imagine yourself, you're back to your childhood and adolescence, and you're trying to figure out who you are and what you're supposed to do. So, for example, you learn from a young age, if you grew up in a church setting especially, that you should be good, right? You should do good and be good, and when you're good, and you're a good little boy or a good little girl, you get a lot of praise from your parents. And so, we cover ourselves up, and I've got my dress pants here with me today, so I'm gonna dress in front of you. There was a, a prophet named Isaiah, who walked around naked for three years in front of the people of Israel to give them an illustration. And I'm not gonna do that, but I am, I am gonna dress. So we, we put on our dress pants. We put on our dress pants and we wanna look good, right? Because we learned from our mom and dad. I do these do fit, I think, still, since the last wedding I went to. All right, so we wanna look we learn if we put on our dress pants, we go to church, and we look good, then that's an identity for us. And if anybody ever finds out we're not good, that would be devastating. So we put on this goodness that we want everybody to see. And we also learn that um, among our friends growing up, that fun is an important part of our identity. So we put on our flip-flops to go along with our dress pants, which I'm gonna keep my flip-flops on. And we look around us as we get older and we see what gets respect and we start to notice, well, it's performance. So how you do in school and in sports. In America, sports is a big deal. Music maybe, whatever it is. And so you, do, you, you start to put on an identity of who you are based on your performance. Well, you're the straight A student or you're the football player or the soccer player. So I brought my uh, Morocco jersey here with me today that I'm gonna put on. And we, you'll notice that my outfit's gonna not match very well. Because that's kinda what our personality is outside of God, because we're just trying to put it together. You know? What's that? <laughs> so, I've got my Morocco jersey, because this, this represents me growing up, that I found a lot of my identity in soccer. It was the sport I played, and I thought it was the beginning and end of my identity for a long time. Um, but then we start to feel in our lives a bit of, as we grow up and we grow older, we feel insecure, right? And so we do like this man, and um, we find education and job and career as that thing that will keep us secure. So I'm going to illustrate that here with my Lowe's hat today for any of you who work at Lowe's. And so now we've got our whole fit. We've got our whole aesthetic, and yeah, it doesn't really, it's not really, let's say, authentic. It doesn't really go with one another because we've just pieced it together. Our 
personality is just a mix of what we hope will give us some worth and some value in this world that we didn't find worth and value. Thank you, Luke, for taking the picture of this. I'm actually going to preach the rest of the sermon in flip-flops and dress pants, which uh, I didn't think about that when I started this illustration. Yeah. So we put, we put forth to the world a persona of what we want the world to see us as. And we do that for so long, and we believe that, that we begin to believe that about ourselves. And we actually think that that's who we are. And we can't let anybody see who we really are. In fact, we ourselves don't know who we really are. So as we come to this passage, I, I remember my son Noah, he's the most astute observer as a child of culture. He would pay attention to all sorts of power situations going on in the world and who gets respect and who doesn't and wealth and, and just everything. He would pay attention and he'd talk about it. And I remember one, we were in North Africa and we were working in a, a country where you have to meet in homes. You can't have an open service and church. And we would come back to the U.S. And our church in Ohio, we have four or 500 people and he would enjoy that, and we'd go back. And I remember we were sitting in our house church. There's about 10 people gathered there in the living room one time, and Noah said to me, and he doesn't even remember saying this because I asked him the other day. He said, Dad, I've figured it out. I think the better the preacher you are, the bigger church they give you. And we're sitting there with 10 people. I'm like, I don't know, Noah, if that's the situation. He doesn't remember saying, I don't, I don't think that he said that. Uh, but, of course, that made me feel very insecure as a dad, right? I'm like, man, um, what do we do with this house church to get it to grow, right? So what, what does that mean? We can even make ministry about our identity, and it doesn't even any longer reflect Christ, but it reflects me and what I think about myself and, and how I serve. And not just the pastor, but everybody in the church can even begin to use service to the Lord as our identity of who we are. Um, this young man's life is an illustration of that. Uh, if you look in verse 17, that as Jesus was beginning on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to be saved, or to have eternal life, to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Um, so this man has based his identity on a few things, and we're going to read that. David Michael read it for us, so... I think you're going to get it. Um, if Alex could help me go to the next illustration here. This guy had built his self or his false sense of identity. We can call that a false self. If you read much about psychology, they correctly identify. I don't think they identify the solutions, but they correctly identify that people live out a false identity or a false self of who they are. And he, his was primarily based around two things, great possessions, but also his observance of the law. And what did he get out of those things? Well, I can imagine he got four things potentially. He got a sense of power, that because he had money in his society that he felt he had some power and influence. In fact, as you see in verse 17, he comes straight to Jesus. Now, if you've been paying attention in Mark, the disciples have begun to ran, run interference, and they don't allow people to come straight to Jesus. Children try to do it, and they stop them. All kinds of people, we see different times where they stop them, and Jesus will either tell them to allow them or things like this. 
But these disciples backed up when this rich guy came to Jesus because he was wearing the clothes and the symbols of those days of somebody of influence and power. And so he probably got a sense of power from his possessions. He probably also got a sense of success. Um, it's very unlikely that he came about money on his own. He was young, so it's probably he came from a family with money. But still, we have this illusion you know, we're born here in America, and we, all, we have access to so much wealth, and often we think like this man, well, I'm successful uh, because of the location of where I was born. Now, we don't think about it that way, but we have this sort of superiority based on our money that we think makes us more successful, more intelligent than people who have less resources. Another thing, he surely got experiences of pleasure that you can't, uh, or at least ease of life with money that you can't get in other ways if you don't have it. And then he got a sense of security. I think this was a big one. In those days, the insecurity of life was massively greater than today, where we live. Um, at any moment, your one kingdom could overcome another kingdom and you would be um, completely find yourself in the opposite role of where you were. So he had all of these things that he got out of his possessions, and you could fill in the blank. I have no blank without it. Today, this passage is about great possessions, but it's not just about great possessions. If you look toward the end of the passage, the disciples said, we've left everything for you, and Jesus said, no one who has left, and then he gives a list, family, lands, nationality, houses, and money or possessions for my sake. So this is about all of those things that you could fill in the blank here. I have no security, power, possessions, or pleasure without whatever that thing is for you. So Alex, you can go to the next one. How did this happen? And we're, we want to understand how this happens in our own lives. What are the causes? Um, I think Matt said he missed my hand-drawn illustrations. So I've written, I've done some hand-drawn illustrations just for him today. Um, what, is it what happens when you grow up rich? Well, there's a pride in your social status that you have. Um, there is also the assumption that God favors you because you're rich. You have the superiority even before God. And in fact, there was a long tradition among the Jewish people that said, if you are successful, then it's because God favors you and he's blessing you. And if you're not, it's because you're being punished for something. If you'll remember in the book of Job, that's what that whole discussion was about, whether he was no longer loved of God because of the difficulty that he was going through. So he surely assumed that he is favored by God because of his wealth. Not only that, but the disciples assumed that because when Jesus said it is hard or impossible for a rich man to in inherit eternal life, they were shocked because they thought the rich would be first in line because they were clearly favored by God. So if they can't get into heaven and eternal life and into the kingdom, then who in the world could? So he surely assumed, there was an assumption, God favors me because he's giving me success and he has given me possessions. Finally, um, there was an inbred, or an in, not inbred, but a in, like a very deep sense of fear if he were to lose those possessions. He was surrounded by people so poor that they were surviving 
um, just by scraping it out of the land just to be able to eat, and he had money. The only thing separating him from destitution and poverty and scraping your life out of the dry ground of Palestine was these possessions that he had. And so you can imagine growing up like this, you have pride and assumptions and fears that all go around money and possessions. So we're going to use that today to talk for a second about you and I. Not just about our possessions, but about all of the things that we would put in that blank and say, I don't have security, I don't have pleasure, I don't have power, and I don't have success if I don't have this thing or this person. We're going to talk for, I want to invite you, the way Christ was inviting this young man, to consider the things you've identified yourself with so deeply, but it's really just the clothes on the outside. It's not who God made you to be, and it's not who uh, will be the eternal you that God created for you. And so there are five steps that I think we can see in this passage, essential steps to replacing that false self with the authentic self made in Christ Jesus. Um, so we'll go through these one at a time. First of all, um, good news for the false self is the title today. So the first thing I was going to help us out with is you have to believe that God loves you just how you are. Now I want you to look with me in this chapter and in verse 21. So Jesus asked him in verse 18, he said, what do I have to do is going to be important to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, a list, the last six of the Ten Commandments that all have to do with how he treats other people. The second part of the Decalogue is, have you loved your neighbor as yourself? And he says quite confidently, I've done all of these things from my youth. Now Jesus looks at him in verse 21 and loved him. Now, Jesus didn't love him because he was such a good keeper of the law. In fact, Jesus didn't love him because he was about to leave all his possessions and follow Jesus because Jesus knew that he was going to choose that day poorly. And he wasn't going to follow Jesus. So the amazing reality of this is that Jesus knew this man down to his core. He knew through all of the clothes of richness that he was wearing, and he could see the very most intimate part of this man, and he still loved him. He knew that he would reject him and walk away sad because of his possessions, and he still loved him. So God this would not have loved this man anymore if he had followed Jesus, and he would have loved him no less when he decided at that moment not to. This man's story is not over. In fact, we can be confident that God and his spirit and his goodness continued to pursue this man until the moment he died to express to him his love. Now, you were created in God's love. That means the moment that, the, long before the world was even formed, God created you in his mind out of love. He sustains you today, every moment, with every breath and every meal you eat and every moment that you enjoy his beautiful creation. 
He sustains it because of his great love for you. And you today, no matter your own uh, misplaced identity, are being pursued by God's great love for you. His extravagant, some people would even call it reckless, love, that he would love you that much. I want to read from a book. I bought a, brought a few copies of this book here because if you really would like to start a journey yourself of knowing God and knowing yourself, identifying those things in yourself that you've created to be your identity and your idol. I read this in Germany the last two weeks I was there. This was a recommendation from Hans and printed by InterVarsity Press, which is University Outreach Ministry and Discipleship. This book, six chapters, has um, enthralled me about how we all need so much to get the gospel deeply in us, not just preach it and talk about it and serve, but really let the gospel identify for us where we are putting on a false self and letting Christ be formed in us. So if you're interested, you can buy one of these from the church. The church has bought them for $10 each, and I'm going to have these. You can come talk to me, and I would love to start uh, having conversations based on some of the things I read. I want to read for you a a quote from the book. Until we dare to believe that nothing can separate us from God's love, nothing that we could do or fail to do, nor anything that could be done by anyone else to us, we remain in the elementary grades of the school of Christian spiritual transformation. In order for our knowing of God's love to be truly transformational, it must become the basis of our identity. Our identity is who we experience ourselves to be, the I each of us carries within. An identity grounded in God would mean that when we think of who we are, the first thing that would come to our mind is our status as someone who is deeply loved by God. So in the Christian life, he's saying, we do not grow past the idea that God loves us, but we grow in the soil of the conviction and the confidence that God loves us. Um, I'll give you an illustration. I met Ryan from Zambia this week, and he was telling me how he came to Christ in Cape Town, South Africa, when he was in university there. And he said that he would walk by, he didn't grow up in church, and he didn't grow up knowing anything about the Word of God. He remembers walking by a church many times in Cape Town. He would hear them singing and hear worship and preaching. And he had this just inner conversation with himself, and he said, these are the people who are really loved by God. I'm not one of those people. The funny thing is that all of the people that are inside of that building are often trying so hard to be lovable through all of their effort when God has already placed his sovereign love on them. That is to say that the first step to coming to Christ and to growing in Christ is to believe, deeply believe, that you, just how you are, not because you change anything or because you do anything better or you serve him better or more, but you, just how you are, were created in love, redeemed in love, and that he is seeking you in love. The heart and the soil of Christian growth 
is that you are daily convinced that God loves you. Why is that so important? Well, the second step is why that's so important, if you could help us out here, Alex, is that you have to then expose your sinful parts to the Lord. That is to say, this young man was not willing to expose his failures to the Lord of creation who already even knew him. When he came to Jesus and Jesus said, well, have you obeyed this, uh, rules number four through 10? And he could have reflected himself on the reality that not only is there a negative side to the commandments, do not steal, do not cheat, do not lie, do not kill, all the do nots, but Jesus brought us the positive side of that is you are to actively love your neighbor as yourself. But he was not uh, coming to Jesus with this, Lord, have mercy on me. He was coming and saying, what more can I do? What more must I do? There's a sort of a terror that obeying and, be, and basing your identity on being good has and that you never know if you're good enough. In reality, if this man were convinced that he were good enough, he would not have, as verse 17 said, run up to Jesus and begged of him, tell me, is there anything else I'm lacking? Because all of the effort to be good enough before God only leaves you with the absolute fear that maybe you weren't good enough. And with this desire to cover up yourself and say, I promise I'm good. I've done all that I can, even since my youth. And use that same false self that you've been using your whole life. But if you can receive the fact that God loves you just how you are, then you can open up yourself and take off that false self and allow God to really search out those parts of your life that are sinful. This is the difference between Christian transformation and the transformation that the world offers based on that every part of you is beautiful and wonderful and valuable. There's, there is... The Christian idea is that you are completely loved by God even though you are a sinner. That is to say that there are, very, there are the ugliest parts of each one of us, if we knew them about one another, if we knew every thought that one another had, um, none of us would remain in this room with anyone else at this very moment because we all go about trying to hide these things. So what did Jesus do? The first thing he did was he pointed out to the man that he's not good. He said, why do you call me good? No one's good but God. He was pointing out to this young man that, you know, in fact, you are not good, but there is one who's good and he's God. Jesus wasn't saying, I'm not God. He was pointing out the fact, you call me good and you have rightly done so. The second thing Jesus did is that he proved in this conversation that he wasn't good. So not only did he say it to him, but he proved it. So let's look at how he did this. In verse 21, Jesus says this to him, you lack one thing, go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. The law is two things, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. This command that Jesus gave him in verse 21, the first part is to love your neighbor as yourself, giving away all that he has to the poor. 
And the second is loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and come and follow me. He was telling him, obey the law with all of its intensity, and you got it. The reality is that in verse 22, he was sad at this saying, and he left sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Um, I want to use marriage as an illustration of this. Marriage is a mirror of our relationship with God. As long as we are um, not receiving the reality of our own sinfulness, then marriage is impossible. It's a constant war of covering up my sinfulness and accusing you of your sinfulness, being one person and the other. But marriage is beautiful when I come to my spouse recognizing the potential of harm that I can cause to any other human because of my own sinfulness. Because it's such an intimate relationship, but we hide even from one another in that relationship. Like Adam and Eve who tried to cover themselves with the leaves and hid themselves physically from God. If they could have been convinced by the love of God, if they would have understood God's love for them, I think that they would have been standing there when God arrived completely naked as they were with their arms open saying, Lord, we need your mercy. But their response to sin was to hide, and we still do that, sons of Adam and Eve and daughters. So you can see real spiritual transformation in, you, in your life, but not by doing more. This man said, what more must I do to inherit eternal life? That's not going to be the solution. This man should have come to Jesus and just said, Lord, I need your grace. I have worn all of these clothes of riches, but I am poor. I am absolutely poor of spirit, and I need you. But that's not what he did. So that's what we must do. Um, the main point that, God was show that Jesus was showing him is that he has broken the first commandment, which is to have no other gods before me, Right? Commandment number one, you have no other gods before me. Jesus said, follow me, leave all of your wealth and follow me, and he could not because he had a God before him. He had his God of his possessions. So that brings us to number three. Step number three is identify your false self. This is a very hard thing to do, which is why I offer this book because it's helped me this week to identify some things in myself that I put forward as my false identity this man, we, find, we see very clearly it was three things. First of all, it was the list of things that he had done. It was his goodness. It was, the list of, it was the amount of things he had, the things he possessed, and it was the reputation that those two things brought for him. Those things were his identity that he could not imagine value in his life if he were parted from them. For this reason, he walked away from... Jesus, sad. Um, but what is the one thing in your life? What is the one thing that you get your emotional needs met by? Um, what are the potential false selves that you are wearing and have been wearing? A lot of times it's our profession, the thing that we do. We find our identity in that, and even ministry, we've mentioned that. Sometimes it's our personality. We've even created a personality that we think people like and we're afraid they'll see one they don't like if we were our real selves. Of course, and this is a main reason for our repentance today that David Michael let us in, possessions. Our possessions meet those 
needs in our lives and we're attached to them. Our reputation. And many times it's another person or the idea of another person. It could be the idea of a spouse or, that or the spouse in particular or, one of, or a child. Um, that's why Jesus says toward the end of this passage that if you have left, and he mentions relationships, if you have left uh, houses or brother or sisters or mother or father or children. So these close relationships in life can be for us an attachment. I want to read another quote from this book. We think of our attachments as anchors of well-being. In reality, however, they sabotage our happiness and are hazardous to both our spiritual health and our psychological health. Ultimately, attachments are ways of coping with the feelings of vulnerability, shame, and inadequacy that lie at the core of our false ways of being. So let me give you a few questions that might help you to identify what are some of these false idols in your life. First of all, what are you most bothered by in others? The thing that most bothers you in others, for example, I despise people who aren't on time. You probably building for yourself a sort of an identity that's very proud of yourself for being the punctual person and organized and put together. Or I despise people who, and you can just put anything in that blank, that thing reflected to yourself is very likely the identity that you're trying to wear in front of other people to prove your goodness. What are you defensive about? That thing that nobody could even begin to talk to you about. And if you don't know what that is, ask your spouse. Uh, and they'll tell you if you're married. That thing that they're afraid to talk to you about because you'll explode, because you'll be defensive and you'll create an argument that lasts forever. That thing is very likely part of that identity outside of Christ that you're building for yourself. Third thing, what are you compulsive about or obsessed with in your mind and conversation? That thing is very likely the thing that you are hoping will make you valuable, make you worthy, make you worthy to be loved by God and others and to have a place in this world. Um, a few days ago, Matthew Perry passed into eternity, an actor from Friends, and if you grew up in the generation I did, you've seen it, and you know it, the younger people, uh, most of them are on a youth retreat, so they aren't here, and they have no idea what that show is, but Matthew Perry passed away, and I'm sure everybody's seen it, it's been in the news constantly since it happened, and as I was reading about his life, one thing struck me is that he wrote just last year in his autobiography, he said that he was more obsessed with being famous than anyone he had ever met. And he knew a lot of famous people and a lot of people obsessed with being famous. He said he was obsessed with being famous and he thought if he could only be famous, it would fill that void that he felt in his identity and in his life. He said, I found out I was trying to fulfill a spiritual hole with a material thing. Um, so would you say to the Lord, show me all aspects of myself that I've created and I'm holding on to as my identity. I want to know them. Would you be willing to do that? If you can believe that God loves you, even in that failure, then I think that you can. The fourth thing after you've identified that false self, is to sacrifice it. Now, this is a very important point because the question is brought up, should all people who believe Jesus immediately sell all of their belongings and give it to the poor? 
Should all Christians be, uh, should they take a vow of poverty? Well, I want you to consider Abraham. God called Abraham to sacrifice the one thing that was most precious to him and in his old age, the son that he never thought he could have that God finally gave to him by grace. And God came to him and said something that seemed completely opposite of what God would want you to do with your son, which is sacrifice him. Now, if we should all take a vow of poverty to follow Jesus, we should also all sacrifice our firstborn children. That's probably not the point. In fact, Jesus never told anybody besides this young man to give away all that they have. This was the only time he did it. But consider what he did with the disciples that were fishing. He said, leave your profession and follow me. Consider what he did with potential disciples in Luke 9:58. He said, leave your father. When the man said, I want to go back and bury my father, he said, leave your father and follow me. Another man who wanted to go and sell some property, he said, the foxes of the fields have holes and the birds have nests, but the son of man has no place to lay his head. He has no home. What he's saying is, leave your home and follow me. Whatever that thing is that is so connected to your heart and your identity that you would not be willing to leave for anybody and, and even God is what you desperately for your own soul need to give to the Lord. He's, there's a, two things to understand about wealth here in this passage. The first is that the increase in wealth creates a danger to the soul. For those with great wealth tend to trust in their great wealth. That's what he says here, isn't it? When he says it is so impossible and hard for a rich man to go to, have, to inherit eternal life or to enter the kingdom of God. So the increase of wealth, while many of us consider it the goal of our future, is to increase our wealth, is actually a great danger for your soul. Because it has a way of getting into your heart and into your identity that you are corrupted by it. So why is that? Um, the reality, just uh, as an illustration, the reality is that the gospel has always moved from places of wealth to places of poverty. So Christianity started in the Middle East, but then it migrated into Europe over centuries. And Europe in those days was a very poor place, north of Italy, north of the Roman Empire. And it migrated in there, and as the centuries progressed and they became rich, it migrated over to the other hemisphere, over to the United States, which became for a while the center of, of the world's Christianity. Now, Christianity is migrating out of the US or let's say into the global south. So South America, Africa, China, now have the majority of the world's Christians. No other religion moves like that. All other religions, where they were planted and established is still where their center is. So what about the gospel causes this migration of its center to places of poverty? I think it's this, that you cannot be a follower of Jesus while treasuring anything else above him. You cannot be a follower of Jesus without treasuring him above everything. And people who have much somehow are confused by the illusion that their things are more valuable than him. 
So I warn you Americans and me American, people if you are nationally American or not, it's not important, the fact that you're here in this very prosperous country, that the wealth of this country is our greatest temptation away from Christ. So as an individual, the depth of the gospel in our hearts will be measured by tossing off these idols. And as a church, we have an opportunity in a few weeks, we're gonna give a Thanksgiving offering. This has to do with it. We're not gonna give an offering to build ourselves a building. We're not gonna give ourselves an, an offering to create for ourselves better ministries that serve us. We're gonna give an offering that we'll give to the poor. They're gonna give to the refugees among us. So it's each person's individual worship to say, Lord, I want to show you that you are more valuable than the riches that I have. I hope that we will give out of a heart of worship in a, in a couple Sundays when we do that. Fifth and last thing in the steps is the most important. Jesus said, come follow me. So come follow Jesus. You cannot find salvation by buying it, meaning you cannot give away all that you have for God and then gain with him favor. The point of him saying, sell all that you have and give to the poor was not so that he would then earn himself a position into the disciples, but he was inviting him. And he knew he could not follow him without selling these things because these things had his heart. So this is the opportunity that stands before you now to find real spiritual transformation is to come follow Jesus. So who is Christ? Christ is the rich young ruler. We think that this story is about a rich young ruler, right? It is about a rich young ruler. It's about Jesus, who was rich, yet for us was made poor, who was ruler over all, yet for us was brought down to a manger and finally to a cross. So Jesus was not calling this man to do anything except follow him in the path of Christ, which is to give himself to the one who gave himself for you. Now what a wonderful exchange this is, that we could give all of ourselves to Christ and get all of Christ for us. But oh, how foolish we are to not realize what a wonderful exchange that he's offering us. So, Jesus is that true self made in God's image. Your true self is that self that is being restored into the image of God through the process of Christ in you. That is to say, I, I gave you an illustration when I started of the self that's fun with the flip-flops and the self that's good with the dress pants and the self that's great accomplishments with the soccer jersey and the self that's seeking security with the hat. But none of those things are yourself. The one true self is your unique individual creation of God remade by Christ into the image of God that he made you to be. That's your true self. Now, here's a few, four quick things about that. First of all, it starts with a decision. If you have not made a decision to follow Christ, then you're not following Christ. That is to say that to follow Christ starts with coming to Christ. Um, so today, he's standing at the door and knocking and inviting you to follow him. You can start that journey with Christ today.
and it's all by his grace. That's the second thing. It's a gift. There's nothing you can do to receive that true self by extra work and extra effort. This man said, what can I do to inherit eternal life? We read in Titus that Alex read for us that it is a gift of his that he loved us and offers it to us, and those who try to work for it cannot have it. The third thing is it's a process. So it's a moment when you follow Jesus, but it's also a process of God remaking you into the image of Christ until the return of Christ. I want to read one short quote to finish today with, from that book. The self that begins the spiritual journey is the self of our own creation, the self we thought ourselves to be. This is the self that dies on the journey. The self that arrives, that's on the return of Jesus, is the self that was loved into existence by divine love. It is the self that is one with Christ. So the invitation to follow Christ is the invitation in a process, in a loving relationship, Christ in me, that remakes all of my identity into the image that I fell from in sin. Lastly, in verse 28 and 29, it clearly tells us in 30 that the reward is out of this world. That is to say that it's a hundredfold in this world and he says, in the age to come, eternal life. So the invitation to follow Christ is eternally rewarding. So by conclusion today, um, what is that thing in your life that has become so deep in your identity that you really feel you're hiding behind it and that nobody really knows you and that you haven't even let yourself be known by God? I want to invite you to come and lay that down today, to come to Christ and say, this thing has a stronghold on me, I'm going to be honest. Um, I feel a lot of security from this thing. I feel a lot of my identity from this thing or these things. Um, but Lord, I want you more. And I want this path with you to be remade in me. And as a church, if we will take this path individually and together, we can be that sort of authentic church this group of people that's not putting on Christianity, that's not putting on religion as a way to show others our goodness. And when people enter among us, um, they can meet Christ. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your great love by which you loved us. We thank you that you are more worthy than all of the possessions and all of the idols that we have. I pray that you would show us by your mercy these attachments that we've had to our things and to the things we do and the reputations that we have, we might follow you, Christ, and be transformed into your image. In Jesus' name, amen.